This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. We had a great weekend. One of my friends had a bachelor party, uh, which involved fishing and sheep scouting. Doesn't get much better than that. We checked out a few new spots looking for sheep. We found a ton of mountain goats and a few ewes, but no rams. Uh, but that's all right because the fishing was a blast. We hiked into a mountain lake, caught a few cutthroat. Uh, we fished another lake and did decent on some rainbows. But the best fish for me anyway is always whenever I catch one right in front of my friend Rocky when he's not catching any fish. You can just feel the jealousy. It's awesome. Uh, but anyway, it was a good time. Michael was angling way harder than us though, so we got to go hear about his week. Welcome back to the fishing corner. I uh, used to make fun of walleye fishing and now, I don't know, I might be a walleye angler because we've been catching them. The boys have been catching them. It's been sick. Besides that, fly fishing starting to pop off. We got the big salmon fly hatch coming. I saw a couple bugs last week. Super excited about that. I floated them. I don't know. Yeah, I floated them up. I floated them up. I'll, I'll say where it was. Uh, again, amazing time to be in Montana this, this time of year. June, we got some water this year. It's been sick. We got those high flows. We got great water for the rest of the summer. Hopefully those trouts are real happy. Saw some fish rising, caught a few on a streamer. Are you cheersing hot dogs on that screen? Yeah, we're cheersing a little sneak peek on this bear hunt. Me and Jace doing a little glass and cheersing a hot dog. But anyways, hey, 4th of July, get out there. We live in a great, great country. Celebrate. Do a little fishing. If you do, let me know how it goes down in the comments below. Love you guys. See you next week. Back to you, Marcus. On to a few news stories. So last week we talked about shifting cultures within Fish and Wildlife Commission and mentioned how the commission seats in Oregon are based on congressional districts, meaning that most of the power resides in population centers on the western half of the state. We also mentioned how there is a bill to change that and shift the power to be more based on geography rather than population. Oregon hunters, tribal advocates, agriculture interests, logging interests have all been advocating for this, arguing that the decision should be made where the natural resources are, not from those residing in cities. So that bill passed the House and the Senate and is currently waiting to be signed into law. We'll see if that happens. The U.S. Fish Wildlife Service just announced that they are expanding hunting opportunities on three national wildlife refuges while simultaneously announcing a ban on lead tackle and ammunition on those refuges along with a few others. This is the second time that I can remember where the announcement of new hunting opportunities came out at the same time as announcing another lead ban on other refuges. Here is what we do know about lead in wildlife. There is solid evidence that shows lead is really not great for birds. Raptors have been documented dying from lead poisoning from consuming big game carcasses that were killed using lead ammo. Waterfowl also get sick and die from lead, consuming it either directly or from lead leaching into the soil and water and being taken up into plants that are then consumed by the waterfowl. This has been documented to be especially true in heavily hunted areas, and it's the reason that lead has been banned from waterfowl hunting since 1991. We also know that non-lead ammunition and fishing tackle is on average way more expensive than traditional lead. This can increase the barrier for entry into getting into the outdoors for sure. There's also concern that banning lead is a step in the direction of banning hunting altogether. While the extremes on both sides get fired up about banning lead, there is somewhat of a middle ground that groups like backcountry hunters and anglers seem to be advocating for, and that seems to be avoiding the blanket bans on lead while offering incentive-based approaches to use non-lead in areas that warrant it. 
For example, this is done in Arizona in areas where California condors frequent. The condors are endangered and have been shown to be susceptible to lead poisoning. So Arizona Game and Fish educates hunters on this. And for the hunters who draw permits in that area, they are given a free voucher for a box of non-lead ammo. And if they turn in their gut pile and dispose of their carcass properly, they're entered into a raffle to win various prizes. This is a method where agencies don't have to outright ban lead, but they highly incentivize people to use non-lead ammo along with best practices to avoid leaving lead in the field in carcasses. Anyway, the new rules on wildlife refuges have riled some people up, but at the end of the day, there are 48 new hunting opportunities on three wildlife refuges. You just won't be able to use lead when you participate. In New Mexico, researchers have been trying to determine what is causing declining calf recruitment in areas of the Southwest. An article on the Wildlife Society website summarized and examined two research projects in New Mexico. They were two separate studies that both occurred on the Vermejo Park Ranch. The Vermejo is one of Ted Turner's ranches and it's one of the largest private land holdings in the United States. One of the studies was done by New Mexico Game and Fish where they looked primarily at a top-down approach, basically looking at the food chain and seeing what roles predator had on survival. They found that about half of the radio-collared elk calves died within their first three months of life, mostly from black bears. So they concluded that bear predation was the main limiting factor reducing recruitment. Then the second study, conducted by Vermejo researchers, tried looking more into bottom-up factors, things like precipitation and range condition and what impact they have on calf survival. They analyzed around 1,800 hunter-killed cow elk during December and January so they could assess pregnancy rates. The range condition was significantly better on years that had more rain in June through August, which led to better body condition and higher pregnancy rates. So the moral of the story to me anyway, is it's a combination of factors that can lead to low calf recruitment. And it's almost impossible to point a finger at one thing in particular, such as pointing at just predation or just weather. But the better biologists understand how these relationships work, the better they can make decisions to promote healthy herds. In Kansas, the Department of Wildlife and Parks is considering adopting changes to limit the impact that non-resident waterfowl hunters are having on the opportunity for resident hunters. In recent years, Kansas has seen an uptick in non-resident hunters traveling to the state, out-competing residents, and putting extra pressure on the resource, especially on public lands. The department noted factors such as technological advancements and ample post-pandemic free time as reasons for the increased pressure. To curb this, they are proposing limiting non-resident hunting to only Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays for the entire waterfowl season on Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks lands, while reserving the rest of the week for residents. They are also proposing to establish a non-resident migratory waterfowl habitat stamp to be sold at a higher price than the resident stamp. In previous meetings, other ideas have also been floated that were to decrease the bag limit for non-residents, boating restrictions, and limiting the week between Christmas and New Year's to resident hunters only. It sounds like there is still at least one upcoming meeting in August where this will be discussed further. This is nothing new. As pressure on resources increase, states have to find ways to curb that by implementing regulations, and it's hard to fault states for limiting non-resident use first. One of the main concerns, however, is that non-residents often fund a significant portion of states' fish and wildlife budgets, so when the states implement regulations restricting non-residents, they're either going to have to continue to raise fees for non-residents, or residents are going to have to pick up the bill. It'll be up to the state and the public to determine what that balance is between residents and non-residents to fund the agencies. Well, this is going to serve as a segue into our deeper dive, where we're discussing how advancements in technology increase hunter success, and how regulations are going to have to be created to keep opportunity. What are we talking about today, Marcus? All right. Today, we are talking about technology and hunting. Ooh. And what prompted this was Jim Heffelfinger yeah. sent out a fact sheet yeah. at the Mule Deer Working Group 
the West or the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Mule Deer Working Group, yep. they have these fact sheets that kind of encompass the their stance on uh, various hunting related things, primarily with mule deer, but they kind of dive into a lot of stuff. So, uh, yeah, the technology and hunting and how it's going to affect uh, success rates and opportunity and Tag regulation numbers. changes, tag numbers, and season dates. So yeah, but yeah, changing technology and hunting is not a new thing. I mean, well, that yeah, look at that that laptop there. That's that's a significant change. Jace's phone, right? You're more worried about someone getting this phone about your Google Pay or Apple Pay than you are probably all your waypoints stored on there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like there's examples going back. I mean. I mean, I don't know. You know, people used to kill animals by running them off of cliffs. <laughs> you know, yeah. a lot has changed since then, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, it's been a constant progression. And yeah. then I feel like there's, you know, if you look at it on a timeline of technological advancements, there's going to be spikes along the way of, yep. like, where it progresses much more rapidly. Yep. And that's where I feel like, at least in modern times, wildlife agencies try to be proactive at developing new regulations to keep that from creating an unfair advantage, I guess. Yeah. And we've seen it in the last couple of years. I mean, trail cameras, right? right? A lot of states, I know for sure, Nevada, I think Utah and Arizona put restrictions on trail cameras. Yeah. Well, and then there, I mean, not only trail cameras, but then there's like the cell service trail cameras that will send you real time information. Um, yeah, and then just think about, like, the maps that have come out, like, digital mapping, like, what that enables you to do. Um, I mean, long-range rifles, long-range archery, optics, quality of optics, the coatings on glass, the um, clothing that allows you to stay out longer. How about the, my 2019 Ford Raptor compared to my dad's 1969 <laughs> two-wheel drive GMC with four on the floor? Right. We got stuck three or four times a hunt. Right. Well, and that was one of the things on Jim's fact sheet that was that he talked about is, you know, a lot of times people had two-wheel drive vehicles, and then as far as you got with a two-wheel drive, that's where you had to start walking. Yeah. Now there's side-by-sides, quads, <laughs> all sorts of little right. electric bicycles. There's Yeah. yeah. This is one that I do want to get into because I think in Montana that within terms of transportation, like vehicles allowing for increased hunter success, let's say, that we've seen a bell curve already of where it's gone up and then it's gone back down, in my opinion. And I'm curious what you think about this, Randy, because, uh, I, I mean, there's so many, if you just walk around in the mountains in, in Montana, you'll see evidence of old two track roads right. everywhere. And there used to not be any travel management plans. Yeah. You could drive basically anywhere you could physically get a vehicle. Yep. And so old Jeeps and Toyota pickups, Drive them to the top of a mountain if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Just chain, or you could chainsaw yourself a road. And like, so, but because of travel management plans on most of the public land, the federal public land, that, that is no longer the case in a lot of areas. Right. And so I think that, you know, as far as vehicles themselves allowing for hunters to be more successful, I feel like that has been curbed. Oh, at yeah. least it has. A lot. And like, 
I know you know more about that than yeah, I do. Yeah, the history was in the early 90s, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks surveyed hunters at all the season-setting meetings. I remember being at the one at the Holiday Inn. Do you guys want shorter seasons, choose your weapon, fewer general units, and let motorized travel continue at this really rapid pace? Or do you want us to work with the federal agencies to close seasonally or permanently a lot of this, and you can keep your six weeks of archery, five weeks of rifle? And when it was a show of hands, out of every 100 guys, maybe three said they wanted to still be able to drive everywhere. And uh, I think that is part of the reason why Montana can have, you know, what is it? Six weeks of archery, five weeks of rifle, 10 days of muzzleloader on general units, and most of the state is still general units. Yeah. So, uh, then you, you can compare that to other states. Let's say Utah, I think. In Utah, it's like, if I can get there with the motorized vehicle, I'm going to try it. Right. And so look how restrictive their seasons are. So to your point, managers have to account for this. And, and we're just talking about motorized travel, but it doesn't matter what it is. Game managers have to account for how technology gets us there, makes us more effective when we get there, all those things. Yeah, so I think it like the writing on the wall is that we will have to develop regulations like state agencies, state agencies and, and hunters will have to self-regulate to some extent and advocate for some of these changes if we want to have the same opportunity that we currently have. But like you said, with the travel management plan, uh, that was a change that's already happened in some areas and less so in others. But that's a, a few of the things that I've seen, like, cause I was kind of curious about this and I started to try to think of like, what have been regulations that have restricted technology? Because it, it's not like we haven't. It, it's been a progression for forever. And so yeah. uh, things that people have done that I thought of were restricting to me, two-way communication. I know at least within Montana and then several other states, there's restrictions on two-way communication for hunting purposes. So travel management plans we talked about. Uh, so weapon type and restriction, like muzzleloader seasons and like what type of muzzleloaders you can use. Same with archery, same with rifle to some extent, but that's like the one where rifle is, there's a lot less restrictions. And yeah. this is one I think that people are getting really fired up about. And Jace, well, Jace has been playing around well, shooting a lot too. And that's like, something I just learned like, about. I've been really kind of diving into the rifle things and shooting a lot, but I also just learned that in some States, I believe and this might be the only one of the only rifle restrictions I'm familiar with is a weight limit. Yep. Uh, 16 pounds, I believe. Yeah. And, and you want to know why that happened? Because in Idaho, they were shooting like 22 pound of Barrett fifties. Yeah. And they're like, no, you got to be able to shoot it from the shoulder and it's got to weigh less than whatever. Cause yeah. they got anyone tough enough to do that. <laughs> Knock yourself out. pal. <laughs> <laughs> but that came in about 10 years ago. Cause right. there was a trend of, of doing that. And I, I don't want to pick on Barrett, but like 50 cows. Yeah. And, uh, Interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy when that, when that was a bit of a trend. Yeah. But you look at when you talk about muzzle orders, right? Uh, some States don't allow, uh, scopes. So right. Nevada, it's open sites only. Well, just by the mere fact of making it open sites and New Mexico just changed it last year also, that's a, that makes it a pretty primitive weapon because you're not going to do a 350 yard shot with a, no. well, well, you might try it, yeah. but let's face it. Yeah. yeah. With the exception of some of those old, old school boys with their tank <laughs> yeah. sights, you know? Right. Yeah. The old <laughs> like, guys with the, their Quigleys and their Shiloh Sharps. Yeah. But, 
No, I, I think people get upset about this when it happens, but agencies and, and managers have had to do this since we started with wildlife laws. I mean, they got rid of punt guns back in the 30s, right? Because right. you'd lob one volley in there and you'd kill 300 ducks. Right, yeah. So, like, or like, yeah, just not being able to chase down game with a vehicle, like right. that kind of stuff. And then some of the recent ones were, well, I guess – the recent one would be outlawing drones, pretty mm-hmm. much. Every, yeah. Most of the states I'm familiar with that I've read regulations in in recent years have outlawed drones for the use of hunting. Yeah. And then also, uh, I mean, same-day flying airplanes, too. That's been a regulation for quite a while in a lot of states. Yep. Alaska, um, you're not allowed to hunt with the use of a helicopter. Right. Any That's the only state access. I know of. Right. You, you can't even get flown out to your camp or... Get flown back. So in if a you helicopter. take a helicopter ride, you are not able to hunt. Uh-huh. Is there like, I guess, a waiting period? It's just no. You, no it's, you're out of the game at that not point. Allowed to use it for any hunting purpose. Okay. Yeah. So well, you go right across the border to the Yukon. Yeah. You can fly a helicopter up, land around the corner, walk over there, and shoot that ram, and you know, take your picture and call it good. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, one I think that I feel like is on a lot of people's minds, and at least my mind, is like the long-range shooting and how how um, good rifles have gotten recently. And like wow. you can poke out there a long ways, but I don't know how you restrict that, or or maybe and maybe we won't. And that's the thing. And I think that there probably always will be maybe that rifle season in a lot of states is going to be that. I shouldn't say like all bets are off. Like obviously we're not going to ring back punt guns or, or like like you said, <laughs> yeah. you know, have a weight restriction. So I guess that's one way. Yeah, I I don't really know. I it's what do you do? I I don't know. It, uh, the only thing that's going to happen is we're going to cut tag numbers because success rates keep going up and up and up and up, and so expect rifle tags to probably get cut more. Right, but that's the the other thing. So I mean in. In theory, it, it is increasing success rates, right? right? That's what's going to drive the thing. But that's what I was trying to figure out is, like, there's so many other factors at play. Like, how many places have, do we think that, like, long-range hunting or, long, or you know, that all, or even all the technological advancements in, uh, together have increased success rates dramatically in certain areas? Yeah, I mean, I, it has to. I'm sure it's happened well, in well, some areas. Well, I think the long range shooting too. You could even argue that there's that air that there's a lot more room for wound loss. So then, like some of these long range shooters, maybe they're wounding two or three deer that die, and then they go kill their buck. And I don't know though. I don't buy that argument as much because I'm think, not saying that that's a thing. I'm just I think that hunters on an idea here. Every hunters over the course of time have will and always will push their limits always, regardless of the technology. So even when there was open sites and you, you're, you're using your 30-30 and you shouldn't shoot more than 75 <laughs> yards, somebody was what, shooting 200, 200 yards yeah. and they were wounded deer. <laughs> and so I get it. And, like, I don't know, the long-range shooting, that's a whole other podcast, I guess. Topic. Yeah, I, I, but, but I, you asked for some examples and knowing we were going to do this, I pulled up a thing that Jim Heffelfinger sent me about Arizona. They're over-the-counter archery deer tags because how they manage it, they say we want we allocate this percentage of harvest to muzzleloader, this percent to rifle, and this percent to archery. So if one starts having super high success rates, they got to do something to keep them in those kind of brackets they've agreed to. 2012, 
and prior to that, the success rate for archery over-the-counter deer was 4 to 5%. 2020, it was 14%. That's a and, crazy jump. And that trend line is kind of like your stock market portfolio, right? There's a few ups and downs, but from 2012 to 2020, it's like, boom. Yeah. And uh, what, what could have <laughs> happened over that? Well, that'd be nine seasons. Right. Well, and then Arizona is an interesting example because you see the outliers of drought years where hunting over water increases success rates dramatically. But like you said, if you normalize that over the course of however many years, that should kind of, kind of the trend lines are going to be indicative of something else happening. Right. And it could be a whole combination of things because at that same time, we had increased in motorized off-road, ATV, other stuff. We had an increase in trail camera use. We had amazing technology. Uh, you, you take a bow from 2010 and compare it to the bow you have in well, 2020 yeah. and everything. That's a huge increase. That's Digital maps, uh, aerial system. I mean, look at Google Earth. Do, back in the day, you could never sit down and fly over someplace from your desk. So oh, yeah. You, you look at all that and it just, uh, I think to your point, Marcus, it's a multitude of combination things that. For sure. Yeah, and there's no doubt that archery, I mean, that's like crazy like the advancements that archery technology has taken i guess to me it, it almost more extreme than some of the rifle stuff but it's probably a lot of parallels um in recent years i still have my old one old oneida bow at home i should bring it in it's the first bow i bought in 1993 and i still have some east and aluminum arrows on it well and then there is there are some archery restrictions uh mostly like electronics on the bow and then the amount of let off that you can have. Um, but it's, it's, I feel like some of it, it becomes hard to regulate. It's going to be weird. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like how do you, you know, if people keep making more efficient cams or this, like if somebody comes up with a really good fast cam, I didn't like, you know what? That's it. Like that one, not, not allowed. Like we can't, that's, that's too fast. Hey, I or, that's that's the challenge for agencies and for hunters. How do you restrict it? You probably don't. So the fallback becomes you restrict the number of tags. Yeah. And Alaska, you know, whether it's technology or whether it's whatever, vulnerability or trying to keep harvest lower, they passed a law as hard as it is probably to enforce that if you draw blood on a black bear, you're done. Right. That was, I'm not saying that's what everyone should do, but I'm just saying there are steps. Every state has taken some different approach to it. And that's just what they do to try keep within the confines of what the, the population can allow for mortality. That's, uh, it's super interesting because I, 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 when there's going to be things that we can't even like fathom, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. what happens when there's like real time? Uh, satellite imagery or something you know right. that and then well there's a whole host of other issues that are going to come up if that <laughs> ever happens but like it's just like can you imagine just having real-time satellite imagery of anywhere on the globe like what yeah. that would do yeah but i think like, it's to your point though marcus the first time somebody took a piece of of obsidian and started flint napping yeah that was technology oh for sure the first time somebody strung a stick with a piece of sinew and whoa look how much stored energy is in this bow that was technology so that's 
since time began, <laughs> it's been out there. It's just how how do we address it? How how do how do agencies address it? Do you, so I guess here's a question for both of you. Do you, do you? I think there's some people restri- self-impose restrictions. Oh like, yeah. Do you guys do you feel the need to self-impose restrictions at at times with technology, or do you? Uh, you I just mean, rely on the agency and follow the regulations, and it's like, well, if it's legal, I might as well, might as well do it. Well, I, for me personally, I don't. As far as like the use of like e-scouting materials and that stuff, I'll, I'll use whatever I can to help me prepare for a hunt. But then, like, as far as maybe a weapon, um, heck, if you if this season's allowing me to hunt with a rifle, I'm taking a rifle all day. I'm not gonna say, oh, I'm only bow hunting. I'm usually taking whatever like route is going to lend me to the high, what I think is going to give me to successfully filling my tag. So if that's, yeah, taking advantage of using any weapon hunt and I'm going to bring my, my rifle, then yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm not at the point where I feel that I want to restrict myself and making it harder to fill a tag. So I, I, I agree with Jace. If you tell me, Hey, that's a bugling elk and you can actually go there with a rifle. Or a bow or a muzzle, I'm probably grabbing my rifle if right. it was legal. But I there are some derivatives of that where I feel I'm restricting myself. Like I I got rid of I only have three pins on my bow, 20, 30, 40. If it's past that, I I I hunt, I want to get closer. I went to that Leopold shooting academy two weeks ago and realized just how capable equipment is out to some crazy distances and crazy conditions we were shooting. Right. But I'm I'm not taking rifle shots just past 400 yards because I want to get closer. Yeah. And so is that a restriction? I don't know I'm, if I'm restricting myself. It's just where my comfort level is. And I've, I've had a couple things that didn't turn out that well in my life. And for me, I don't want a mess that I got to try to clean up out there. So, yeah. And I know – Distance is the variable that everything gets amplified. <laughs> so I I guess I'd say I put restrictions on myself in that way. But no, I'm using, you know, like Jay says, I'm using digital maps. I'm e-scouting. I'm, I'm doing yeah. everything I can to make myself the most prepared I can be when I go out there. I don't drive my dad's 69 GMC. I don't wear, you know, <laughs> my, my Wranglers. I wear them here in the office, but I wear very high-performance technical clothing when I'm out there in the conditions. So, yeah. Yeah. Guilty as charged. <laughs> no, and I feel like that's how most people feel about it. I mean, I think if there's something – but and I, I think when they do come up with – Okay, I'm going to use the example of drones. Like when drones started to become consumers, are available to consumers, like I feel like most people are kind of on board when game agencies are like, let's not do that. I don't think people like really got fired up about that regulation. And so I think it's just going to be kind of like a case-by-case basis of as, as these technologies progress that, you know. But that one was an interesting one because that was kind of like a big jump to me of like, Versus going on a airplane ride, and to just all of a sudden being able to just launch one and just like for five hundred bucks you could be flying all you want and looking over a ton of ground like that was a big change. But like yeah, things like optics and and rifles and archery has kind of just been this like Range progression. Finders. There's no, there's not like a huge there's 
there's bumps along the way, but it's not like a huge you guys, uh, I, spike I, anywhere. In I wish I had my first rangefinder. It was a parallax rangefinder where it would be out of focus, and by the time you got it in focus, it would it was like a manual dial. It would be like, oh, about 440. It, it wasn't a laser rangefinder. It was a parallax rangefinder. Right. That was like, oh man, these are this is like cheating, man. You, we we can't be having this. And then along comes laser rangefinders with angle <laughs> compensation, yeah, and all this stuff. Well, <laughs> so. that that's another interesting thing where you can almost categorize some of the technology into like like something like that. I feel like largely makes you more effective at killing an animal where there's less room for air, right? Which you, on one side you could like, well, maybe that's kind of like more ethical. ethical. Like some people would view that as being more ethical. While others might look at it and be like, well, that's an unfair advantage. And well, you so can it's also like make like, that argument for someone who wants to take out their new 2023 compound bow and someone who wants to shoot with their traditional oh, for sure. bow. It's like everyone sees it differently, I guess. Yeah. Like, But it's, you can't ignore either that when state agencies come up with certain regulation types, the regulations are literally to make hunters less effective at killing. Like, I mean, just the pure fact that there are archery seasons the yeah. archery season existed exists in most states because it's a less effective way of killing animals and, and that, it allows it yeah, allows an opportunity, opportunity. Yeah, yeah an opportunity thing and so like if people become really efficient at killing animals with bows then that's less of the whole reason that it started in the first place but yeah, yeah so i don't know to me it's just going to be this like case by case basis I, where you gotta have to I, I guess what I would look at it as, and this is just the years of watching regulations be implemented, is it doesn't work me up. Get, you know, it doesn't get me all wound up about it. I just accept that technology is part of life I, in every aspect of our life. But there are some places where we cherish this thing. There's a reason we use the term fair chase. And everybody's got a di different definition of that. And when it's so far beyond what most people would agree with, states usually come in right. from the fair chase standpoint. And then when it takes harvest so far beyond what the resource can withstand, states have to come in and do the same thing. So anyone who gets that wound up about it, you know what? Just throw your sucker in the dirt, grab your toys, and go home. This <laughs> <laughs> is what it is. You know, we, we collectively, we are having that impact we always have had that impact and as far back in the rear view mirrors you want to look in terms of the the recovery of species in north america since about the 1930s there's been continual small just changes that that are meant to protect the resource right yeah and i think like you said it'll hopefully become a collective decision where you know if the majority of hunters feel one way like, if people in Utah want to be able to drive everywhere, but then they only get to hunt an elk every once every 15 years, then, then... That's up to them. That's, I guess, you know. But if we want to restrict road access so we can hunt elk more often, and I know well, it's not that black and white. In Utah... I'll say it, it's not that black and doesn't white. Doesn't Utah have the most, like, you'd say, like, liberal muzzleloader law? They did. They did? They, did they, they just change? Because I remember... I, I couldn't remember. I knew there was a state that, like, you can go full bore... Big old scopes on so your that, that's muzzle a good loader. example. This but was they the did first change year that? that Utah moved a huge portion of their rifle elk tags out of the rut and moved them into mid October. 
Yeah. Well, guess what? They were now able to issue way more elk tags. That same big bull is still out there in that herd somewhere, but you just don't get to call him in and shoot him with a high-power rifle. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to wait till the rut's over. And Well, I mean, there's still a few of those tags, but, again, that was a response of an agency saying, we want to provide more opportunity, but here's the vulnerability that the, that the herd is itself can withstand. So how do we get more opportunity? Well, we issue more muzzleloader. We issue more archery, and we issue, we move most of our rifle tags to later periods of November or October or November. So that was another example of a state agency having to do what they got to do. Shifting it a little more towards the opportunity side in yeah. exchange for, you know, harvest success. Right, and keeping the the harvest of the total bull population at what their target is. So that's Interesting. I guess just some food for thought. Interesting discussion. I thought that would be a fun. Oh, I think fun it's topic great. Mar- to Marcus likes poking the bear, doesn't he? <laughs> this is well, yeah. I guess in some respects, this leave, leave your comments bear. down below, folks. Blame it all on Marcus. <laughs> he likes to stir the pot. It's good stuff, though. Oh, yeah. it, it's the stuff that I think people argue about the most. But we should accept the fact that it's it, we can't just have the free for all, or it's it's going to go off the cliff. Well, with that, wrap it up. Thanks, guys. Thank you.